Hey everyone, so before we get into this episode, uh, you may notice we don't talk about quarantine or coronavirus or anything in this one. That's because we recorded this conversation before this all happened, so in case you forgot what things were like before all this craziness, here's a conversation from those times. Hey dads and non-dads, welcome to the Hey Dad Podcast. This is a podcast where three brothers... Hello! Hey! Hi! And one guy who wishes he was our brother. So, uh, this is awkward, but I thought about it, and I no longer wish I was one of your brothers. Okay. Oh, <laughs> Talk whoa, about... Okay. Wait, no, should we talk about that? No, let's just leave it there. Okay. Talk about dad stuff. And sometimes non-dad stuff. Sometimes we either. get our feelings hurt. And we'll follow up after we're done recording. So we felt like the way dads were portrayed in pop culture didn't really represent us or our friends very well. So we decided to start a podcast, the Hey Dad Podcast, to talk about what dad life is really like for us. So on this episode, we sit down with my friend Ryan, who is a great dude and one of my favorite girl dads. And he had a lot of awesome stuff to say. So here is our conversation with Ryan. So, you know, born in 86 in upstate New York, upstate New York, the town that we grew up in was probably, I I don't know the percentages, but 98% white. And, you know, for the listeners who cannot see me, I am black, I'm half black, half white. And so just really growing up in the 80s and 90s in a predominantly white town um, with the white side of my family and my dad wasn't around. It was just, it was a really unique circumstance. And I think one of the unique things is that growing Mm -hmm. up, like you you don't understand black, white, like, you know, you're just a kid and you have friends. So, you know, but growing up, like there were a lot of, a lot of circumstances where it, it became very clear that other people saw me as different, you know? Um, you know, and my mom obviously mm. never had, had my dad around. I think he left when I was around two. And so from that point on, it was just me and her until we moved to California when I was 14. And then, you know, my now stepdad, he, he stepped in. He's been phenomenal. So, yeah, my mom just, you know, it was she worked three jobs. She had one main job. Um, she also had, you know, a couple things on the Damn. side, whether it was real estate, working at my grandparents' restaurant, um, things that I just kind of grew up and thought were normal. But even now as an adult, having one full-time job and, and one kid, two kids now, it's tough. Like, it, it's no joke. So mm-hmm. just seeing how my mom was able to do all of that um, and, you know, kind of raise a black son in, in that world, too, is, was just really interesting, to say the least. Yeah, I think you're someone who has, at least as long as I've known you, you have always spoken super highly of your mom. That that narrative has always been kind of on the forefront of your mind and your vocabulary mm-hmm. to be like, yeah, I am. I'm the product of, and then hearing just, just I didn't really know much about your grandparents, but seeing mm-hmm. you post this week about your grandma, it's like you are very much so someone who would be like, I'm a product of some women in my life, like mm-hmm. stepping in and like choosing to make some gnarly sacrifices for me. One hundred percent. I imagine that now you being a dad of two girls, probably the level of like game recognizing game that you have for your mom now that you're actually in it and know kind of like you actually can count the cost of like okay so imagine what you're doing now now imagine working two more jobs yeah (laughs) like now imagine you don't have a partner yeah and now imagine your partner's not in the equation and Mm -hmm. like jeez man yeah it was you know it's funny because a lot of people would ask me like oh are you waiting for that son are 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 you are you going to have more? You got to have the sun, right? And I've never really cared to. Of course, God willing, if it happens, I would be ecstatic. But growing up with my mom, and it was just her, and my grandma, you know, my, my grandpa was there too, but you know, my, my grandpa was, you know, uh, very 1950s grandpa, like, you know, certainly, you know, certainly wasn't bringing in groceries and, you know, doing everything that my grandma was. So, um, but we parody him a lot on this show. <laughs> I haven't met him yet, but we've already made fun of him a lot. I, yeah, and as I'm listening to like some of these episodes, I'm like, oh yeah, that was that was my grandpa. And even that dynamic between my grandpa and grandma really has played an effect on my life as well, um, because I saw how much he just requested and required of my grandma, and I kind of resented that as as a kid. You know, not in like a totally bad way. Mm-hmm. I always had a really mm-hmm. great relationship with my grandpa. Um, you know, but, but you noticed it, like you oh, you yeah. were noticing the work your grandma was putting in oh yeah even at a young age well and it's also oh, yeah. too like as you have kids you realize like 
it's not just that like you have you're missing out on obligations like you're also missing out on like a bunch of the privileges of having kids like you're just missing out like what? you're just mm-hmm. you're settling for some small shell of what this thing is supposed to be oh yeah 100 percent. so i i saw that yeah. you know from like a husband you know i obviously didn't see him parent that much but i, I always knew i wanted something different especially in my marriage um you know even to the point of if ali my wife you know if she's like hey do you want a glass of water my my initial reaction is to say no because my grandpa would have been like yeah can you get me water can you get me this can you get me that and my grandma would have done it all you're like no and then 10 seconds later you get up and get yourself a glass of water (laughs) yeah um i want to go back to something you said a minute ago um you talked about being raised by your single mom being Mm -hmm. raised by your grandma Mm -hmm. and how you were like hey man if i had a son awesome but i'm really excited to be a dad of girls and then now you got two girls. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, tell me more. Tell us more about what was what was it that you were so excited about about being a dad to girls? I don't know. Just being raised by strong women. I, I kind of wanted to honor them, you know, by having more women in my life, more daughters. Obviously, not like I could choose, but you know, I remember going into the room when we were going to find out, like, you know, hey, are we having a boy or a girl? And I just felt this such a sense of like, it's a girl, like, duh. And <laughs> so when, you know, when she was like, oh, it's a girl, like, there was no shock with me at all because I was like, yeah, that's Reagan. Like, I knew it. Uh, and then with the second, I wasn't as sure, but again, I was just really confident that it was a girl. So if we have 10 more kids and they're all 10 girls, like, I would be ecstatic. I'm certainly not one hey, of those guys. Just so you know, I don't think you'd be ecstatic if you had 10 more kids. <laughs> I'm just going to, I don't think you would. I think Good. you'd be, I think you'd be exhausted. Point taken, and you are probably correct. Uh, <laughs> so we have, so there's three Madsen boys. I don't know if we've talked about this. Did did you and Trisha have a strong sense of like I really hope it's a boy, I really hope it's a girl? Like when you guys with with Gideon, Jules, and Joe. Uh, with Gideon, no, we were just going to be happy either way. And then mm-hmm. after Gideon, we were like, I hope we have a girl before we're done. Yeah, you know, <laughs> just to be able to have just because we would like to have a boy and have a girl, and that yeah. would be great. Yeah, and so. Yeah, that worked out pretty good. Good. <laughs> There's only one disappointment. That's Julian. And Julian, if you're listening to this, you're a disappointment. Yeah, from one middle son to another. Dude, freaking best dude <laughs> in the world. Ryan, sometimes when I'm getting ready for bed and I um, am feeling a little a little down on myself, um, I consider FaceTiming you and talking <laughs> me through your bedtime routine that you have with Reagan because I think uh, it would make me feel better about myself. Thanks, Can man. you tell us about your guys' uh, your routine that you and Reagan do together in the mirror? Oh, absolutely. So every night before we go to bed, we brush our teeth and then we look in the mirror and as tense even as that even that what you just described is already you're already doing a better job of bedtime <laughs> than you because i would say our kids brush their teeth about 50 percent of the time before okay bed. anyway keep going <laughs> no no worries um, this is why we have you here ryan this is actually actually this whole episode is going to be about dental hygiene <laughs> oh good well i i'm glad i'm here mm-hmm. let's start talking about it yeah so we you know we look in the mirror very intentionally and we say i am strong i'm intelligent i am beautiful and I am capable. I love myself. I'm glad I'm me. There's no one else I'd rather be. Bye-bye. And, you know, pretty much, you know, even going back into a little bit of history, right after we had, you know, Reagan, I remember reading some stats about girls, you know, young girls who grow up in, you know, just in our country, in the world. And at age five, typically, girls see themselves as completely equal to boys. But then at age six, something changes. And girls start to see themselves as like a little bit less than boys. And I read that, and A, it broke my heart. And B, I was like, uh-uh, that's not happening in this house. Like, it, you know, <laughs> I, will do, I will do everything in my power to not let this happen. So I went on Amazon. I researched every single female girl empowerment book I could find. I bought them all. And so I just really wanted to focus on that. And then, <laughs> no joke. And then I a couple it. months later, I was in Denver and I was just looking at this bookstore and I wanted to bring back something for Reagan. And I found this book called I Like Myself. And I'm reading it in the store. I'm like crying because it's just like, you know, this you know little black girl um, who was just saying like, I like myself. I'm glad I'm me. There's no one else I'd rather be. And I just love the message. So I got it. And we'd read it to Reagan all the time. So then, yeah. Ray and I just started saying this because I, I really wanted her to believe it. And I really wanted her to have kind of like a mantra growing up. So it was just one night we 
you know, just kind of said it and she liked it and that we kept on going. So now every single night before bed, we do that. And sometimes I record them. Most of the time I don't, but I always love to put them out there. And it's been incredibly sweet because I've got a, just such a cool reaction from our friends. Uh, like a friend of mine I grew up with in New York, she had messaged me out of the blue the other day saying, hey, you know, somebody at school called my daughter, you know, a name that obviously is not great. And she goes, I went onto your Instagram and I found that video of you and Reagan saying your mantra and I played it for her. And like, then we said it ourselves. So just the fact that 3000 miles away in New York, a friend oh, I grew up with, so you know, good. was, was using that just, it warmed my heart so much. It meant so much to me. So now obviously I do it for Reagan. When Sienna grows up, we're, we're going to do that as well. Um, so, but the fact that even one other person out there is, is repeating as well, just means the world to me. Yeah. That, that person 3000 miles away and, and Tyler. And me, me and oh, me yeah. and my dog Dobby every night. Oh, that's awesome, man! I love that so much. And that, Thank you. that's that stat about uh, about um, little girls seeing themselves as equals in that like five to six, and like I'm sure that's related to going to school and mm-hmm. all the like sort of the institutional sexism that we it, it's you have to sort of have eyes to see it and even when mm-hmm. you're looking for it there's probably things that, that you can't see it, oh, it also yeah. reminds me of this other stat that uh i used to work for a company that did a lot of stuff in the creative space and um there's a very similar dynamic uh that exists around art which is okay. and i don't i'm not going to get the exact stat as perfect as you but it's basically like right around the age of five like mm-hmm. everybody thinks they're an artist and then at like right around like six or seven, it, it becomes whether or not you're a good artist is whether or not you can draw things that look realistic. Mm. And that's like the mm. only thing that okay. determines whether or not you're a good artist. And if you can't draw things that look realistic, like you're not an artist. And then we sort of self-selected to I'm creative and I'm not creative. Yeah. And it's just, it's such a bummer, especially because like Gideon is like right now, my seven-year-old is like right on the cusp of, I'm, I'm watching him right now start to compare himself to others in ways that he's never done before and compare himself mm. to Julian, his, his little brother in ways mm, that he's okay. never really done before. And it's, and it's less of this internal, um, identification and more of an external one. I'm going to, mm. I'm going to identify myself relative to the mm. things around yeah. me and the people around me rather than just intrinsically speaking, who I am. Yeah. And I yeah. think those, like we have our own sort of, uh, version of the, you know, bedtime routines and stuff like that. But that, that's why it's so important to have this like base at home because mm-hmm. you're gonna get you're gonna get whipped around outside mm-hmm. the house. Oh, and 100%. sometimes it's gonna be great and sometimes it's gonna be terrible. Like that's just what life is. And my wife and I were having a conversation about uh, sheltering our kids in school and like how we feel about that and exposing them to things and mm-hmm. you know uh, it, you just life is life. Like the world is the world. And like, you're just going to get, there's just so little that you can actually do, um, to, to actually protect them because, you know, isolating them from everybody else is a different form of exposing Mm -hmm. them to things that are (laughs) dangerous and terrible. Mm -hmm. But it just seems like the only answer is to, to, uh, do everything you can to try to create resilient kids that know who they are. Yeah. And then, 100%. and then, and then, in ways that are safe and appropriate, send them out into the world for them to learn the yep. lessons that they need to learn, and and also hopefully be the people that all those situations need them to be. We were Absolutely. talking recently with with some friends about the concept of drifting and this idea that like you like too fast, too furious. Yeah, like Tokyo <laughs> drifting. Sick. Uh, and how cool it is. Yeah, that was it. It was and, a great uh, conversation. Anyways, do you guys want to go for a ride? Um, <laughs> No, just the, the idea of like drifting. Like you, you usually don't drift somewhere good. Like you usually don't drift into your final like oh, the, totally. the destination you were longing for. Like it takes a lot of effort and whatever. And mm-hmm. I think like the voices of our society and culture are so loud, and the current that we are like when when your kids start to leave the house and they go to school or whatever, or they're away for a weekend with friends or whatever. Like you don't get to be the the current that's in their life twenty four seven like you do when they're an infant or like when they're when they're really Mm -hmm. little or whatever. And it's like these things that you're doing now, like you're building an infrastructure for a little person that knows how to navigate that current so that when some voice comes at them that doesn't sound like the voice that they heard in their house growing up, it doesn't sound like the voice of dad, doesn't sound like the voice of mom, whatever, doesn't sound like their own internal voice that they're coming into terms with. Like Mm -hmm. they can differentiate between the truth and the lie and they can go, no, that's that's actually not true. And then anything that is, is being put on them that is unfair or unkind or an expectation that's limiting or whatever, that mm-hmm. 
you're building like this internal stamina and structure and system of dealing with these really, really strong currents that will kill your creativity, that will tell you what you can and can't do. And yep. it will, you know, I even think we were talking about the idea of play and like, like adults don't know how to play very well. And when we mm-hmm. do play, it's got to have some kind of outcome. It's like, oh, well, I got a great workout or like, oh, I won <laughs> some kind of game or whatever. Kids just play for no, like, oh, for totally. no, like capitalistic, productive, quantifiable, like, yeah. well, this is what I got out of play. It just is fun. Yeah. And it's like that that is another one of those things like that will get squished if the if the like the value of play or the value of going like, no, I, I know what I want to do. I know how I want to spend my time. I know what things are worthwhile to me. And it doesn't matter what the, the current or like the other voices are saying, like, I'm going to I'm going to do me. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. But it feels like the only way to actually protect your kid is, is not to isolate them. Although, to be clear. There's age-appropriate things that happen along the way, and there's circumstances you don't want to expose them to, and yet you know you have to use good discretion and stuff. But ultimately, like the the omega, the place you want to end up at is like this is someone who can thrive, even even in situations that are very much outside of the vibe of this house or the value system of this house, because they know who they are. Yeah, you get, you got to start with that foundation, and that's something I've always really really focused on because I understand, you know, just like me, like I was just talking about earlier, you know, I growing up, I just see myself as a kid. I've got my mom and this and that, and then all of a sudden I go out into the world, and people are like, "Wait a minute, like where's your mom?" I'm like, "That's my mom." Like, she doesn't look like you. It's like, oh, because she's white and I'm, you know, I'm black. Um, you go out in the world and you know you get called the N word. Like you go out in the world and you're like. You know, there's a story my mom told me when I was growing up that I thankfully I don't remember, but it really affected my mom Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, we were probably maybe six, seven playing cops and robbers. And, you know, I I wanted to be a cop uh, in this game. And my friends who were playing with me would not let me be the cop because I look like the robber, according to them. And mind you, this is, you know, this is at six and seven, you know, so I'm not going to go out and, and say that these kids are six and seven are racist, but there was something in their lives that led them to believe that I could only be the robber because yeah. I look like the robber. Well, and, and the weird part is like, go with me on this. In a weird way, they're right. Because what they're actually saying is the media that I've been exposed to, the stories that I've been told mm-hmm. about what a robber looks like, mm-hmm. it looks more like you than it does like me. Because oh, totally. we're they're consuming media. They're watching movies someone, or whatever. Someone Somehow, like... Mm-hmm. There, you know, that didn't come from nothing. Totally, and that's that why came so from some up. cultural story that's being told to them. For sure, and, and that's why I get so caught up on representation. And you know, certainly there are some people that are like, ah, oh, like you know, Black History Month, who cares? And I'm like, look, man, like if you want to go in this whole like White History Month, like don't get me started there, you know. But you know, like representation <laughs> really matters because like growing up, you know, it, yeah. it wasn't until President Number Forty Four that I was like, oh, I could actually be president because the first forty three did not look anything like me. You know, and you know, I'm not saying I want to. I want to be president. It's but easy rep- to say that representation doesn't matter when you've got your representation everywhere you look. One hundred percent. Of course, like someone like me, that's like a white man. I'm like, representation doesn't matter. Well, yeah, that's because everywhere I look, I see white men doing cool stuff. It's of like, course, it doesn't matter. It's like when you're really full. It's the air I'm breathing. It's like when you're really yeah. full and someone brings your food, and you're like, we don't need food. We don't need food. Food we doesn't don't need matter. Food. Mm-hmm. I'm so full. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't so, you understand? I get great food whenever I want it. Why are you talking about food so much? Why do, who needs food? Aren't isn't everyone I can see is full? <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. And that's where I think that picture comes in from. Because again, those those six and seven year olds, again, like they saw that somewhere, they heard it somewhere, they they picked it up. I'm like, well, who are you surrounding yourselves with? Like, what are the books that you're reading? What is the media you're consuming? You know, and if you look around and you're surrounded by by everybody that looks like the same, I'm not even going to say like one particular like ethnicity or anything. But if you're around the same thing every single day, it's like, well, of course your kid's going to feel a little bit, you know, nervous when they're around something different. So I, I preach just representation. I preach, you know, just diversity, you know, and not like changing your whole household. Like I'm not saying like, you know, hey, go out and adopt kids from every single nation. You know, that's not the case, but, you know, just just understand that there are differences out there and just expose your kids to what those differences are. Because if you don't expose them to it, they're going to make their own assumptions, just like those kids assume that I was the robber. Dude, that's, Yeah. <laughs> That's so important and that's so powerful. And it's such a bummer that like, you know, six or seven year olds who, I don't know, for all, either maybe they were in a house that was loudly, explicitly racist. I don't know. Or maybe they were just, just like normal kids that just watch 
the same things everybody else watched and naively make assumptions. But mm-hmm. like either way, it's it's that's just so terrible and destructive because then the story that you're told and and again, I'm I'm glad you said that that was this this didn't feel like this like inside out core memory where you know, it's something you hold on to for the rest of your life and it's something your mom remembered more than more than you, mm-hmm. but but those those are stories that we we're telling kids that look a whole bunch of different ways. Like this is who you are and this is who you aren't. For sure. And then full circle back to your bedtime routine. That's why that uh-huh. bedtime routine is so important. Cause you're saying, no, yep. this is our story. This is our story about who we are. This is exactly who we are. And you know, I've been doing, doing that nightly mantra for a long time. And a couple of months ago, a friend of mine sent me this Ted talk from this guy named David Beard. Uh, and it's called, it's not just what you say. And so I'm, I'm listening to it and he, you know, just through his whole scientific studies was saying like, you know, it takes, oh, I think he was saying it takes like seven times the compliments to cancel out like one negative comment or something like that. I'm, I'm certainly paraphrasing. I could yeah. be totally wrong, but you know, somebody, you know, you could have 10 people in a row say like, oh, you guys look really nice. You look really nice. And then somebody walks into your room and says like, ugh. What's, what are you guys wearing? But like, that's the memory that you're stuck with at the end of the day. And unfortunately, you go out into the world, and especially with young girls, you have all these people. It's like, oh, your clothes don't fit. Oh, your hair's not right. Oh, your makeup's not done right. So that's why I want to equip you know my girls with everything in their arsenal. So when they come across these people who are going to make these just incredibly dumb comments to them, you know, I want them to understand like, you know what? Like, yeah, you said something stupid, but like, I am strong. I am, you know, I don't expect them to say that like when they're in a job interview or anything like that, but I want them to understand that not only does daddy believe it not only does mommy believe it here's my resume uh check out my dad's instagram story because (laughs) if you'll recall in 2018 dad said i was strong now i noticed here you put uh as a reference you put your dad like uh yeah he has some great things to say about me (laughs) specifically he has four statements about me that i think will answer all the questions you have about how well i can do this job but ryan like you're saying like you know i don't know if they're going to say this in a job interview but like i I know for kids, like the the good positive messaging that does become routine that gets stuck in there, it mm-hmm. it works. Like you were talking, Kev, you were talking about Gideon like reciting a lyric from a Daniel Tiger song to himself when he was feeling the thing that that Daniel Tiger song like mm. that he needed help with, and it's like that song was stuck in his head because music is literal magic, mm-hmm. and it was like stuck in his head like this beautiful magical spell and then he like busted it out at a time that he needed it like that stuff works totally. well it, it's so funny because as you say that and a Daniel Tiger's awesome um Allie was telling me that there was I don't know if she was at school or at home but she was like legit sad one day and um Allie you know she listens to her and hears Reagan like in her tears saying I am strong I'm intelligent and I started to cry oh, when I heard that gosh. story because oh. I was like Oh, she's like, she's using it and it did it's comfort working. her. Oh, oh and I like, gosh, I could yes, like cry right now just thinking somewhere. of it, you know? So, and it's just something that it really, it comforts her. I love it. And just like the older that we get, like, I just want her to know, like, you are strong. You are beautiful. You are everything that you're created to be. And there are a bunch of idiots out there. And don't you listen to a single word that they have to say. I know that something that's really important to you, something you talk about a lot, both privately and publicly is the narrative of what a black father is. Mm -hmm. You wrote Mm -hmm. a medium article a little while back. You said, quote, I am here to eliminate the world's perception of me as a black father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With me just as a black dad, obviously there's, uh, I want to be the best dad period, just, you know, across the board. There are just a number of incredible black fathers out there. And unfortunately the stereotype with black fathers is that they're just, you know, either a not as good or B not around. And for me, what was especially tough is the fact that, you know, I do have a black father and unfortunately he did leave me and my family. So for me, it was always like, you know, kind of like taking a sword and twisting a little bit. Cause like you want to break the stereotype and then, Oh, where's your dad? I was like, Oh, he, you know, he left. Um, you know, so for me, and then thankfully when we moved out to California, my stepdad, uh, also black, phenomenal. And like, you know, he, here he is raising a black son who's not biologically his own, but he treated me like his own, you know? So like there's, there's that mm-hmm. level. And then for me, you know, I really just want to show myself. I know more than anything, it's probably for myself to just prove like, you know, Hey, I'm shattering that stereotype when everyone around me is like, Oh, of course, like, of course you're a good dad. Like, I didn't expect you to be anything less, but for me internally, it's just like, I have this drive to like, you know, to do the mantra, you know, do the ice cream videos, do, you know, write the blog post, be present, you know, do all these things. Cause I just want to go above and beyond to just like prove to myself and prove to the world that like, you know, I am a great dad. I'm a capable dad. Um, 
you know, so I, I think sometimes I probably go a little overboard in that, to, to be totally honest, but it's just something that means so much to me. You know, about 10 years ago, you know, me and, you know, a couple of my friends, all of whom, all of us were black, we were at one of our friend's house, you know, with his parents who were also black. Um, so it was just, you know, like a room full of us, you know, like we're all black, we're all, all chatting. And I remember my friend's dad had, had said to us, and I'd never really thought about it before. So 10 years ago, I was probably like 21. And he had said to us, he's like, you know, I'm just, I'm so proud of you fellas. He's like, all of you like are, you know, are, are doing well in lives. None of you have been to jail. And for me, I was like, oh, but then I really thought about it. And like, here it was like a black father mm. who I don't, I don't know what he'd been through, but he's looking at us as young black men, like all doing well. Thankfully, 10 years later, we're all still really doing well. And he was just like so proud of us. And one of the reasons for that is like, we haven't been to jail. Like we're all providing, like we're all doing well. That just shows like, you know, how like the, the black community, that black culture is just, it's a little bit different because, you know, I think in, in other type scenarios, you know, when you're 21, 22, you know, I, I don't know if you guys, I don't know if your dad ever told you like, hey, I'm just really proud of you that you haven't gone to jail. I'm really proud of you that you have nope. <laughs> you know, done all these no, things. No, that's but, just table stakes. Yeah, that's it, like, of course, you're not going to go to jail. Why would you go to jail? Totally. And, you know, so it, it's just, it's layered. And I've had so many conversations with people who, you know, will make comments very, I don't know, just um, they don't, they mean well by the comments, you know, but there are people that look at like, you know, maybe people of Oakland just need to work a little bit harder. And it's like, look, look, man, I, I mean, you finished, you finished a marathon. That is awesome. But like, don't act like you start at mile zero when you start at mile 24. It's so fascinating understanding that like, you know, you know, you look at any of these communities, they happen because of policy. They didn't happen because of the color of our skin. I think this is something that people don't think hard enough about. It's mm -hmm. like, if you think group of people acts a certain way, there are two choices that you mm -hmm. have there. Either it's because they are biologically different than you mm -hmm. and predisposed to things that you are not disposed mm -hmm. to, which is pretty much the definition of uh, racism. And it's, that's where you get into like some of the most terrible things that have ever happened in human history start with that assumption. Yeah. Eugenics, because the Holocaust, all of that starts yeah. with you're, you're different. they you're are different. physically, biologically different than us. So that's option yeah. one. Or option two is we are the same, mm -hmm. but different forces have acted upon us, mm -hmm. which have caused us to act in a separate way. Those are literally the only two choices. Correct. And so if you believe that we are the same biologically, the only logical explanation is that they have, as, a, as individuals and as a group of people, they've been exposed to, subjected to, privileged to, whatever flavor of that, mm -hmm. a different human experience than this other group has, and that informs their reaction to totally. it. And if you start there, it's so much easier to end in a place of empathy and, and end in a place where maybe we could start to move towards real solutions instead of just blaming and otherizing a whole group of people. Totally. Well, speaking yeah. of drifting, it's, I mean, from that place of privilege, I, I like how you said, this is something people don't think hard enough about. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, yeah, if you follow this to its logical end, you have to confront that either you are a full-blown racist who's like, yes, I believe that this person who looks different is like a lesser evolved life form than mm -hmm. me, is, is what you have to say out loud with your mouth, mm -hmm. or you have to admit that you are either living in a country that isn't as perfect as you want it to be, or that you, or you know, the, the, the collective group that you belong with, whatever, are in some way either complicit or like straight up responsible for mm -hmm. creating systems of inequality, of oppression, of marginalization, of whatever. A couple of years ago, there was this This American Life episode that was phenomenal. And um, I don't know the name of the episode, or so I don't know if any of your listeners want to look it up, but uh, this person studied two separate people. There was, um, I believe, a white man who, uh, he was you know a war veteran, went over to, I believe, Iraq, um, you know, and just was right in the middle of war, came back, had PTSD, you know, obviously awful thing. So they studied him, interviewed him, mm -hmm. talked to him. Then they interviewed this kid from Philly, just grew up in Philly in his regular neighborhood, uh, talked about some of his life, including seeing his own mother get shot right in front of him growing up, seeing some of his friends, yes. same thing happening. Um, and they interviewed him and they said, like in terms of like PTSD, in terms of like psychological, there is no difference between them. So even just taking that, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that we sent off one individual to literal war and came back and he is facing the same exact examples that this individual was born into here in America in, the, in, Phil in Philadelphia. 
And just like, you know, I've worked in HR for six, seven years. And so a big thing in HR is like, you know, just, you know, hey, surface level, does this make sense? And again, I look at that situation and go, does that make sense? Like we sent this dude over to Iraq and he came (laughs) back, you know, obviously served his country really well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But this kid grew Mm -hmm. up in this area, did not choose to grow up in that area and is dealing with the same levels of trauma. And it's just that doesn't make sense. But even what you just said is so interesting, too, of like, okay, this person, this soldier that went off, thank you, thank you, thank you. We honor these people. We celebrate the troops. Mm-hmm. We're like, wow, this is like the – in, in this country, it's like one of the highest levels of like, wow, what a selfless – it's like it's like a nationalistic saint, basically, like someone who goes and does that. And then you have these these homegrown situations where people are on under the same amount of duress just because of the street they were born on or the – socioeconomic class their family's in or whatever mm-hmm. and the kind of neighborhood they are growing up in with the lack of resources they have, the crime rate, whatever. Mm-hmm. And this person, instead of going like, wow, we have the same amount of like compassion and, and desire to support and all these programs for like veteran affairs and all these kinds of things. And then someone like this, what I think this lack of thinking about it long and hard enough leads to is some form of blame of like, okay, well, they, they got some problems over there they better sort out mm-hmm. instead of like the same level of compassion and resourcing and curiosity about how do we support these people? How do we, how do we, if, if we are creating like systems and subcultures inside the borders of our own country that are, that have some of the same effects of like a war torn country mm-hmm. and we aren't dedicating like care and curiosity and empathy to like solving some of those problems. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what we're talking about. Well, and yeah. then if you can draw, if you take all those things that you just said and then you map that over the racial dynamics in this country mm-hmm. and then you mm-hmm. see that like, oh, a wildly disproportionate number of the people that were subjected to that life in Philadelphia that you just described are, not are, white. are people of color mm-hmm. and a wildly disproportionate amount of the people on the other side who, not like there aren't plenty of good white people, of course there are, but oh, yeah. a, wild, a wildly disproportionate amount of the people that... that have a, a lack of compassion mm-hmm. and it's just basically like you got to sort out your own problems and pull yourself up by your bootstraps yes. or whatever. Mm-hmm. It is impossible to look at that situation with any sort of logic mm-hmm. and, and, and say that we don't have a serious race problem. Oh yeah. And say that the opinions that we have as a culture about the way people act are informed by the color of their skin. If you, if you, it's like, if you, if you don't see that, then you're choosing not to see it. Yeah. From like 1776, you know, uh, I mean like this country was founded off of like not including women, not including people of color, uh, not including people that didn't own land, you know, so not including is a very generous way of describing that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm trying to be kind. I don't want anybody. They to didn't. Like they didn't anybody. share. No, no. We built our entire <laughs> they, they economy on slavery. A hundred percent. That was what our economy was built on, and that the effects of that yeah. carry on into today. So this is this is the Hey Dad episode title called Reparations and Why Kevin Thinks They're a Good Idea. <laughs> so there's a lot of like big, uh, I don't know, heady stuff here, and a lot of emotional stuff that we're talking about mm-hmm. that has to do with race and identity and institutional structural things that are broken and highly, I don't know, emotional and difficult topics here. You're black, your wife's white. Like this is, Mm -hmm. this is something I know you've really thought about a lot. And so Mm -hmm. can you just like, I don't know, coach us a little bit on like how, how are, how do we have these conversations with our kids for parents that are like, of like white kids, like how do we create allies that are in first grade and in kindergarten and, and for, you know, and then maybe speak to what your thoughts as, as someone who grew up as a, a black kid, that's going to raise a half black daughter, all of that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting because obviously, you know, my, my wife is white, like I am black, but as I mentioned earlier, I'm half black, half white. So technically my, my kids, you know, they're a quarter black and it's interesting because if I'm not around, like I'm sure there are some so people if they that, play qu- that see quarter them. black. So they hike the ball. Mm, that's corner black. Oh, that's yes. corner black. It's that, yeah, that's corner. Okay, yeah, a little bit different. Um, you know, but they're, <laughs> you know, it's going to be really fascinating for them because you know they they go out and if I'm not there, somebody's not necessarily going to look at them and just say like, oh, she's black. Because um, I mean, mm. quite frankly, that's what people do. If I come around, mm. like it does make sense. I, there are certainly features. We definitely have a lot of like similar features. Uh, her hair is, I mean, it's. Big, it is curly. It is beautiful. I love every part of it. Um, but you know, just on that's, this note, I think if you've never seen a picture of Reagan and and you're listening to the show, 
I have described Reagan to my wife multiple times as the <laughs> cutest child I've ever seen. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that because you're on the show. I've literally said she's my number one draft pick for cutest oh, child I've man. ever seen. And that is above my own children. Thank, oh, thanks, man. I, uh, yeah, I feel honored you would say that. I feel... Yeah, sorry. I mean, but like, have you seen some of the kids in Kevin's life? Yeah, yeah. You should see my Instagram feed. It's pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty low bar to clear. Ugly friends, so I wouldn't let it go to your head. You know, like ugly three-year-olds. We've all seen some ugly (laughs) three-year-olds. Okay, keep going. Keep going. Yeah. So with them, you know, I I really look at it interesting because they are going to be in situations where people are going to talk to them and they're not going to assume they're black. And then all of a sudden their dad's going to come pick them up, you know, from practice or whatever. And they're going to go, oh, I mean, I don't mean to be like a downer on this situation, but like I do have like a little bit of self-consciousness when I'm out with, you know, with Ray, certainly not now, like in Vacaville, like, you know, people know me, but like there's always an element of me, even if it's just like 5%. That's nervous that somebody's gonna come up to me and go like, "Hey, what are you doing with that girl?" And go, "She's my daughter." Because oh, like, geez. you know, so yeah. there is an element. I'm not saying I think about that every single time, but like, there's I I think about it more than I would like to, um, which is mm-hmm. a bummer. So to get back to you know really how we can create allies and have these conversations. Number one, like if if there is anybody that you know is a part of a white family, whether that's like in full or in part or whatever. I would really say talk to your kids about race. And I say that because specifically like the talk, you know, it's so funny because if you ask a black family, it's like, what is a talk? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's when we set our kids down and talk about like how, you know, like you have to drive a certain way when, you know, when you're out in the streets, you have to act a certain way when you're in mm-hmm. public. But you ask like typically a white family, like, what is a talk? And they're like, oh, when you talk about the birds and bees, it's like, uh. so it's even that in itself is is different, you know, but, you know, it's really important because black families or families of color really have to talk to their kids about race but what we find what i found is that like, white families don't do the same you know it's not like the, you know they ever mm-hmm. sit down with with their kids you know two three four whatever you know white kids and they're like hey you know i just want you to understand like that we are in a world where there are people of color that are treated a little bit different than us and we are there might be situations where we are treated better where we have a certain advantage that is not your fault like it, it genuinely is not but i just want you to understand that this is a part of the world that we are in therefore in order order to overcome this is to be an ally is to be understanding is to make sure that we treat everybody the same you know and, and just kind of go from there um but that's yep. really the, the most important thing we can do and you know, i say this because a couple i think it was after charlottesville there was a pod- podcast i listened to where the podcast host who was black he was like you know what after tragedies like this he's like they always turn to the black folks and like what do you think and he goes so for this episode i'm only going to talk with white voices about like you know their thoughts on <laughs> racism and he had interviewed this woman who has studied race she she was a white woman and she had studied race and she was saying that she was um she was speaking with a five-year-old i don't know i think she was a psychologist and she was speaking with this five-year-old who who literally thought every single black person he saw had lung cancer. Like, not just cancer in general, but lung cancer specifically. Somewhere along the lines, he had heard about the black lung, cancer, you know, asked his parents about it. His parents never answered it. So then this kid at five or six or however old he was, he put two and two together in his mind. He developed this person. That's what you look like when you get sick. I hope I don't ever look like that because I got sick. Exactly. So... You know, and that's the thing oh is like, you gosh. know, these kids wow. are going to create their own assumptions at one point or another. So if you just say, hey, just be colorblind, A, that's a lie. And I, it's not a thing. I get so mad when I hear people say that. Um, but your kids are going to pick it up and your kids are going to play cops and robbers and not let the black kid be the cop because of those assumptions. A kid is going to mm. assume that every black person you see yeah. has lung cancer or is scary or is a Jeez. basketball player or whatever because we don't talk yeah. to our kids about that. So, you know, white people don't need to apologize for any of that. It's not like, you know, a lot of these folks were around when a lot of these laws were, were created. But at the same time, I, I, you know, I would hope that they also don't think that they started the race at the same mile marker that, you know, yep. that people of color did. Um, you know, and I said earlier, like, you know, hey, if they started at mile 24, if you finish 26.2, like, you may have, you may have ran the life out of that 2.2 miles. Like, you may have got, like, world record speed, but don't act like you ran 26.2. You know, so, like, you don't need to apologize mm-hmm. for that. If someone drops you off at there, hey, run your race, do it, and, like, do it the best you can, but also don't sit there bragging about how you won the race. It's like, mm. Did you? Dude, I mean, did yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, 
<laughs> not to like mix a metaphor for no reason, but it's it. Uh, Barack Obama had this great line about uh, Mitt Romney, and where he said, and I, I don't think he made it up because I've heard it so much since then. But it was the first mm-hmm. time I ever heard it, which was he was born on third and thought he hit a triple, mm-hmm. which is like, I mean, <laughs> which is exactly what you're talking about. And I've had this conversation with my wife a lot, where I'm like, I was born on third. And I don't want to feel bad for that. I just want to live in the knowledge that I was born on third and in the humility and the responsibility that I have because I was born here. And what does that mean to just be like a white affluent kid that was born into a stable, loving home in California in 1984 and never limited by anyone's expectations, if Mm -hmm. anything, pushed into ambition in like really pretty appropriate ways, Mm -hmm. you know, you could and should do whatever you want. That's amazing. Like I hope I, I, it's just now my job to make sure that more people have that too. For sure. It's not, it's not my job to feel bad about it. It's my job to use that privilege to make sure other people can also have it. And I think that's, that's the conversation that we've started to have with our kids. And it's hard because the the neat and tidy narrative, like Gideon, my seven-year-old loves Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. That's like his favorite historical figure. But like the Shout narrative he wants in his head is like Martin Luther King fixed it because that's a really cool, that's the story, right? That's the Disney movie. That's the hero. I, you know, he there was a problem it, yeah. and you did it and you were brave and you stood up and you marched and all of a sudden like you fixed it. And so, mm-hmm. but, but, but bringing my son who's born as a white kid into a story of progress that's been incremental at, at best mm-hmm. And, and, and then giving him in an appropriate way, the responsibility that a seven-year-old can handle mm-hmm. to like be a part of that ongoing story is a lot messier than like, man, yeah, people used to not, people used to think that people with other skin colors were less than them, but don't worry. We, we, we figured that out before you were born. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's like, nope, your, your generation is going to inherit this too. And you I hope you do a whole lot better job at it than we did. Oh, totally. Well, I think kids too, I mean, stories... Kids love stories, and stories usually have an ending, mm-hmm. and movies have an ending. And when you watch Disney, when you read a bedtime story, it's, and everything's good now, the end. You can They're all to, happy. You can go to sleep. And what I feel like as, as dads, I feel like the, the challenge is to figure out, how do I tell my kids stories that are inspiring, of, of work that just got started? Mm-hmm. And now you get to be part of the story, and you have to help it, help it keep going. Like yeah. You get to help write the second book of the series. and. And hopefully the story keeps getting better and better because you're going to be a part of it. And that empowerment of going like almost like a I choose you moment, like, mm-hmm. you know, I, like I need you to like join the ranks and like continue this work. Absolutely. And the hard part about that as well is that it's not this is a, a sort of a separate issue that's related to race is that it's it's really easy to identify and vilify like obvious external manifestations of racism, oh, for sure. right? Like, for sure. There's not there's not a whole lot of people that think like the Ku Klux Klan is great. I think people that in the, that are in that probably think it's great. Mm-hmm. Outside of that very small group, it's that's mm-hmm. a really easy group for sort of like everyone to vilify. Or when totally. when Gideon's reading stories about Martin Luther King, you know, and they're reading about Selma, or they're reading about the lunch counter sit in, and they see like there's like people there were people that were angrily opposing them, mm-hmm. you know. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, those are easy villains to identify in that story. It's just, it's so much harder as they, and again, he's seven, so we're going to ease him into these things. But like when the villain are, is something that's structural or institutional or way more sinister or way more subtle, like and requires the level of like thoughtful deliberation and intentionality to even figure out what's going on and why yep. it's so insidious, you know, that's not an easy bad guy to make the villain of your story that you get to go conquer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just FYI, um, I have an Amazon delivery that might be getting here in just a minute. So I might, the doorbell might go off, but. Mic them up! Just go, 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 yeah. Come join our conversation. We're talking about reparations. Yeah. Your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Ryan, uh, my wife Kelly would describe you, and she has described you as her favorite dad. Um, Kevin, she's described <laughs> you as her fifth favorite dad. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I think one of one of the the recurring things that she uh, cites and loves you to death for is uh, for those who are listening that don't know, uh, Ryan and Reagan. Uh, pretty regularly make ice cream together and then they put the mm-hmm. process up on YouTube. Ryan has a company where he makes ice cream. It's called Be Ice Cream or Be Nothing. It's great. Yeah, which is a Parks and Rec quote. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ron Swanson, um, shout out. 
And you also volunteer in the Parks and Rec Department in Vacaville, California, right? <laughs> I do, yeah. So you're, yeah, you you are Ron Swanson in in many ways. Oh yeah, I, you got to work on that. You got to work on that mustache. Well, I just try to be a mix of Leslie Nope, Ron Swanson, Aziz Ansari, a little bit of Donna, absolutely none of Jerry. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, you mean yeah. Gary? Oh, Gary, Larry, <laughs> Terry, yeah, none of him. So on this YouTube channel where Ryan and Ray make ice cream together, Reagan being how old is Reagan? I mean, she just turned three, and we've been doing it since she was one. So, so Reagan, as a one, two, three-year-old, uh, spoiler alert, is bad at cooking uh, <laughs> and spills everything all the time. And one of the things I love is watching you in the kitchen with Reagan and watching her mess things up or put her whole face in the in the heavy cream or whatever mm-hmm. it is going on and watching you enjoy her like mess up the process. And I think oh, that yeah. part of like even this mantra about saying like, I'm amazing, like every night in the mirror, I when I look at Reagan, what I see is a, a woman who is probably going to grow up with very little shame when it comes to like making a mess, making a mistake. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way that you are playfully engaging in these kinds of processes with her. Thanks, Can you man. talk about what, what have been some of the cool moments about doing this whole thing, making ice cream in the Reagan? Yeah. And also, can you just send us some ice cream? Oh, 100%. <laughs> I know. I wish we could. Yeah. We wish we'd be eating right now. Um, Ryan and Ray make ice cream was just a way for us to, A, just do something together as a father and daughter, and B, to just make ice cream, create memories. You know, I grew up in upstate New York where there was a local ice cream shop in every corner, so I just love making it in general. Um, and, you know, like you said, I do own my own company called Be Ice Cream and Be Nothing, so I test a lot of recipes at home and so I was like oh Reagan you, you want to help me with it and of course yeah there's sugar and milk and cream and you know <laughs> of course I, I will try it so um but yeah you know some of the the really cool memories are just the fact that we're able to make messes together and we're able to to document it so not only we're making ice cream but we're filming it to really encourage other families especially dads to get in the kitchen and make memories with their with their kids you know i think that's something that's incredibly important Mm -hmm. for families to do is to create those lifelong memories just in general but something about the kitchen something about food and the table it just really brings people together and just really you know keeps that memory strong in a lot of different people um so yeah the fact that we're able to make so many messes together the fact that we're able to you know just do something that's unique to the two of us and hopefully with Sienna one day as well is just more than I can I can say so yeah we put on YouTube for other people yeah we want to teach other people how to do it but for me selfishly if one person watches it or a thousand people watch it it's just cool to know that I have this documented and one day when she's in high school like yeah. we're so gonna be able cool. to play this back to her and go that. hey remember when you spilled the entire bowl of ice cream all over the floor and we had to stop filming um, <laughs> so uh, I love it no but like the reason I love that so much is I think so much of being a good parent is making sure that you're focused on process and not on outcome Mm -hmm. because it's like there's so much of outcome that you can't control and even in like teaching your kids that there's so much of outcome that you can't control but you can control for you Mm -hmm. you're like I know for a fact I can control like the mood I'm in and the vibe I create Mm -hmm. here and if there's a spill along the way if there's a tantrum along the way or like whatever Mm -hmm. that's fine and I hope at the end of this there's some good ice cream Oh, and it's yeah. kind of like, you know, you could apply that same thing to like going on a vacation where it's like, I hope we end up get to get to do this one really cool thing. But here's what I can control. I can control that we're going to have a lot of fun, that we're, everyone's going to be in a good mood, that mm-hmm. we're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I've found for me as like a goal oriented, you know, achievery type of dude, I, I have to be very deliberate mm-hmm. about making sure that especially when I'm doing stuff with my kids, outcome's not important. If I'm building something with Gideon, like building Legos with Gideon. This might sound stupid to people who are just like better than me at this. I have to like remind myself like it's not really about whether or not these Legos look cool at the end, yeah. Kevin. Like it's literally just about building whatever. Totally. And like I just think you model that so well with the ice cream. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's it's funny looking back on some of the episodes. There are times where Reagan's just like you know, literally at the end she's like I'm done, and we just have to. I go like all right, I guess we're done. Bye. Yeah, she's you know? over it. Oh, totally. And there was one episode I think it's called Fruit Popsicles where we set off to make like you know brown sugar peach sorbet, and I totally messed it up. Like Reagan didn't mess it. I messed it up, and I was like, oh crap. I was like, I really don't want to just start this whole thing over. So then we just turned it into popsicles and just 
hey, it had some really tasty, yummy popsicles. So it's just all about just having fun with it. Like we love it so much. And again, it's just a way for us to bond. And then it actually turned into a pretty cool opportunity where uh, a couple of weeks ago, Reagan and I got to go on Good Day Sacramento to teach. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. To teach their their television audience how to make ice cream and I you know I was a little bit nervous because it's like hey we've never been here before we've never met these people like I have no idea if Reagan's gonna be like "Mm, I don't want to do this today because I never want to coerce her into it like I'm not one of those like parents that's like you have to do it for the camera like if she's done with it she's done with it um but she was like yeah let's (laughs) that's how you end up with a Kardashian yeah (laughs) yeah you know so she just went with it and sure enough like from the second that that you know the the camera turned on i was like oh she's gonna be good and then sure enough she was shaking everything she was drinking the bowl she was oh yeah see that's what i loved was seeing her like yeah she was in front of all these like big cameras and lights and these professional like i think that a lot of times that that environment could be really intimidating for a kid like or just a person why is everything yeah exactly but especially like I don't know. We talk about this with Kelly when she does family photos where like when mom and dad are stressed or like, okay, smile. You know, like the kids like some mom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dad over here, Kevin. <laughs> I'm so terrible. Is, is at family being photos. Weird, oh and then it's like gosh. terrible for everyone. <laughs> yeah. And there was this moment where Reagan reached for like the bowl of, of, you know, milk or cream or whatever it was at that point and like went to just take a big old shot. And then the host kind of like looked over at you like, is this okay, dad? And you were laughing like very hard. Yeah. And then the host just kind of like lit up like, oh, this is just kind of the thing. And mm-hmm. Reagan would just was like shameless. She was just like, what? Like, this is what we do. Yeah, it we good. make ice cream and we eat it and yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. And it was like, that's that's exactly what we're talking about, about like building that infrastructure. So when you get out in the world and when someone like, you know, harmless as it, it may be, kind of looks like, oh, dad, is this okay that she's acting like this mm-hmm. you know, in front of everyone? She's like, of course it's okay I act like this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. of the stuff that you guys have built like in your own home. Uh-huh. So then when she's outside of the home, she's like, I'm awesome. I'll do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. Dude, thanks so much. I know Saturdays are precious, and thanks for lending your voice to this conversation. I think we're going to have some really good stuff out of this, so it'll be fun. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks, man. I'm, I'm honored to be on the show. Obviously, I love you guys just on a personal level, and yeah, like I think I've told both of you, I listen to Hey Dad, and sometimes I forget that I know you guys, and it's just... Yeah, you guys are just doing such a great job with it, and um, especially with dad culture and everything. So I'm a huge fan of just you two individually and the show. So I appreciate being on. Thanks, man. Thanks, That's so dude. kind. Well, this last final note, I'm just going to say I'm actively rooting for Reagan to get less cute because it is so cute. <laughs> I hope you're cool with that. Just like, yeah, yeah, hopefully Sienna's ugly. Just like kind of weird. Oh, yeah, Sienna could be the uggo. We're going to root for Sienna to just be not cute. And I don't that's know, fine. man. So, so far, she's uh, I was going to say, eight, 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 yeah, eight weeks in, it doesn't look very good. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look very good from here. And I think you're sort of a uh, two for two. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, All right, man. say hey to Allie. Later, buddy. Talk to you we'll later. Do. Love you. Bye. I appreciate you guys. <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode of the Hey Dad podcast. Uh, but before we go, Derek, can you can you tell just all Derek Derek's army out there about what we're gonna hear next week on the Hey Dad podcast? What's up, Darmy? Let me tell you something. On our next episode, uh, we have the guy who played uh, the Mountain on Game of Thrones, and he wants to talk about being a girl dad. <laughs> cool. Was, I would love I, to listen. To I that. actually this is the first time we've ever done one of these where I wish it was true. <laughs> Uh, well, that's it for now. I'm Kevin. I'm Tyler. I'm Derek. I'm Andy. Love you. Bye.